my, what an amazing privilege it is to be able to express the doxologies of our heart through music. Amen? And so let's come now and worship our thrice holy God that we adore by looking into his word. Will you take your Bibles and turn once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been making our way verse by verse through this epistle for many months now and we find ourselves in verses 7 through 18 and actually we're going to look at really just verse 11 through 18 this morning. And I trust that you're here for the right reason. Let me just begin before we even look at the text. You know, so many people come to church because it's kind of the cultural thing to do. They feel like they're kind of getting some brownie points in the sky, you know, and, and it kind of makes them feel good, get around people that, that they like and so forth. A lot of people are looking for a religious country club, and if that's why you're here, you're in the wrong place. If you're here to be entertained and to have your ego stroked and your self-esteem boosted, you're in the wrong place. If you're here to claim a miracle or to get rich, learn how to manipulate God to meet your felt needs, wrong place. Sorry. If you're here to figure out how we can right all of the injustices in the world, that's not why we're here. But if you're here to learn more about sin and righteousness and judgment and the glory of Christ, the gospel that saves sinners, then you're in the right place. In fact, that's the reason why the Father sent the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus prayed for that. And John 16, 8, we read, And he, when he comes, referring to the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's why we're here, to speak of those glorious truths. You know, the New Testament church was devoted primarily to four things. And these four things are really the center of gravity around which our church and, frankly, every New Testament church orbits. We read about it in Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. That's the full counsel of God revealed in His Word, the Bible. And secondly, to fellowship. Thirdly, to the breaking of bread. And finally, to prayer. So if you're here today to hear from God as he speaks to you through his infallible, inerrant, inspired word so that you can know and obey his will, then you're in the right place because that's what we're all about. You know, if you don't know the word of God, you won't know the will of God. And if you don't know the will of God, you're certainly not going to obey the will of God. And even if you know it, if you refuse to obey it, you're in big trouble. Because the metastasizing corruption of sin will continue to eat away at you, your family, your community, and your nation. 
And we're seeing this right now in our country. I was reading an article the other day that described how Representative Greg Stubbe from Florida was defending the difference between boys and girls, which seems amazing that you would have to defend that, doing this before Congress. And he said this, when men or women claim to be able to choose their own sexual identity, they are making a statement that God did not know what he was doing when he created them, the congressman said. He went on to add, the gender confusion that exists in our culture today is a clear rejection of God's good design. Boy, I hand it to the guy to say this at Congress, right? He went on, whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. Finally, he said, we are seeing the consequences of rejecting God here in our country today, end quote. And what was remarkable, but not surprising, in a response to this, New York Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler made this telling statement, quote, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern of this Congress, end quote. Well, folks, this certainly doesn't surprise us to those of us who know and love the Lord and who follow any politics. But you know what is surprising is how many evangelicals buy into these things. Man's felt needs and cultural mandates tend to trump God's will. I'm reminded of Proverbs 1.9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And certainly the Republican Representative Stubbe learned well what Proverbs 23.10 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Well, consistent with Acts 2.42, we are now going to turn to the Apostles' teaching, okay? As we look at this fascinating passage of Scripture, one that tends to be overlooked. And here we see the Apostle Paul continuing to defend his apostolic authority and his gospel message. Now, remember, we've got to keep the context in mind here. Jewish false teachers had infiltrated the church at Corinth in Paul's absence, and they had turned the people away from the Apostle Paul. They had undermined his authority. They had discredited his message, and in reality, they were charlatans that were very heavily influenced by their culture, a very libertine, antinomian, um, grossly immoral culture. These were ungodly men that brought in a different gospel, a gospel that was a mixture of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism, what the Apostle Paul described in verses 4 and 5 is ideological fortresses and speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So the Apostle Paul learned of this and he writes a severe letter to them and that we do not have recorded. And most of the people repented, but some resistance still remained in the church. As we would say here in Tennessee, there were still some snakes in the barn. You know, Jesus warned, 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Dear friends, false teachers are demonic, and false doctrine is deadly. And certainly we can see the effects of this, even as we witness the frivolous dribble that dominates many evangelical pulpits today, and the subtle distortions of truth that they promote. I mean, just think about it. There's the the entertainment-driven, seeker-sensitive movement that is all about accommodating the whims of those who hate Christ, preaching a a syrupy sermonette with the theological depth of the glaze on a Krispy Kreme donut, and equally as unnourishing, if that's a word. Spurgeon said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And that's where we are today. And then there's the I have a word from God movement. The self-styled prophets who pretend to speak for God, leading people to believe and claim promises that God never made, making prophecies that don't come true. How many times did I hear some false teacher say, yes, God has told me we're going to get rid of COVID. Guess what? That hasn't happened yet. Or Trump's going to be reelected. How many times did you hear that? And then, of course, there's the woke, uh, progressive Christianity movement that advances the junk science and neo-Marxist claims of of critical race theory, preaching the the nebulous and demonstrably false assertions of systemic racism and implicit bias or unconscious bias. And as a result of all of this, we have a Christian church today that is irreverent, it's a counterfeit form of Christianity that has sold its gospel birthright for a bowl of social gospel porridge that cannot save. While some of the specific cultural dynamics of the first century are are different than what we have today, the core issues are the same. What the real need was is for man to see his need for salvation before a holy God. While at the same time, understanding that, that, only sal- that salvation is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 7 through 18, the Apostle Paul exposes the false in a very curious way. He does this by highlighting the true. And as we began to look at He reveals to us six evidences of godliness. We looked at the first three last week. We'll look at the last three today. You will recall the first three evidence is, number one, a life that imitates and draws others to Christ. Secondly, a life that builds up the church. And thirdly, a life solely controlled by the true gospel. And now what we will examine today, he goes on to tell us, how godliness also consists, number four, of a life of unimpeachable integrity, a life of humility and contentment, and finally, a life devoted to the glory of Christ. So follow along as I read the text, 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 11. 
Let such a person consider this, that we are in word by letters when absent. Such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come, even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other man's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So let's put ourselves in the first century, all right? All of a sudden, we're probably in some big veranda. There's probably trees around. Hard to know how many people, probably a little bit less than what we have in this sanctuary. So you're a part of this now, and you're hearing this read. And you're of one of two groups, the group that was duped or the groups that was duped and has repented, okay? Now the inspired words of the apostle are being read. I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop. An apostle means a sent one. An apostle biblically, biblically is a divinely appointed ambassador of Christ, a representative, a messenger who speaks for God and with the full authority of God. By the way, there were three qualifications for an apostle, qualifications that the false apostles did not have. First of all, they had to be chosen directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, they were to perform signs as an apostle, authenticating who they were and what they said, miraculous signs and wonders and mighty works, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And then thirdly, they had to, with their own eyes, see the resurrected Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, Paul explicitly states that he was the last person to have met that third qualification. So the apostles now were Christ's authoritative, revelatory agents, and their writings were inspired. They carried the same weight as the Old Testament scriptures. And now you're hearing this letter being read to your congregation. I can almost see it, can't you? The false apostles are probably seated, seated back in a corner with their little group. All of their sycophants and their arms are folded and they got that scowl on their face. They're looking like they're having a gallbladder attack while the letter's being read. Elbows are being, you know, doing this type of thing. So that's what was going on. I mean, let's just face it. That's the dynamics. And so now Paul, after explaining to them a life that imitates and draws others to Christ, a life that builds up the true church, a life solely controlled by the pure gospel, 
he moves to the fourth evidence of godliness, and that is a life of unimpeachable integrity. Notice verse 11. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Now, bear in mind, there were some false allegations going around about his character and conduct, lots of different things. And one of them had to do with the idea that Paul lacks consistency, he lacks integrity, that he's two-faced, that there's really two Pauls. There's one that is fierce and frightening in his letters, but then there is another wimpy, weak little guy when he's in person. That was the allegation. But Paul wanted them to understand that he was perfectly willing and able to deal aggressively and forthrightly with any of these people face to face. It kind of reminds me of a, of a, of a quiet, soft-spoken, long-suffering father dealing with a rebellious teenager who finally looks over at him, points his finger and says, Son, don't make me have to come over there. That's the dynamic that's going on here. So Paul assures them that he is the same man in person that he is when he's miles away communicating to them in writing. And he knew, and frankly all of these people knew, that the false teachers were the ones that were duplicitous, that were two-faced. Their public persona did not reflect their private persona. I've witnessed this so many times over the years, having dealt with so many highly visible Christian leaders and music artists and so forth, laypersons as well. Oh, you'll hear these Bible verses just dripping off their tongue, just flowing like honey in public. But in private, look out. They'll treat their staff like slaves and they'll cuss like sailors and drink like pirates. I've seen it. Paul was nothing like that. Moreover, Paul wasn't afraid to com- confront these people face to face, and they all knew that. Paul was not ruled by fear. Godly people are not ruled by the fear of man. They fear God, but they don't fear man. He was not a people pleaser. I'm reminded of Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. An unjust man is abominable in are abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. By the way, that's why the hypocritical false teachers hated Paul. They hate righteousness. They hate Christ. That's why we now live in a country that is, that, that is bent on, on legalizing unrighteousness and criminalizing righteousness. They can't stand it. That's why you have so much hypocrisy in government, for example, and in the church as well. Dear friends, like perhaps no other sin, hypocrisy is absolutely devastating to your testimony and your relationship with Christ because the Lord knows the truth. You're not fooling Him. And if that is you, you need to repent and you need to guard your heart. And know this, that your costume of pretense will eventually come off. And the charade will be exposed. Many times the Lord uses his word to do that. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 12 
and 13. The Word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So Paul was no hypocrite, and he was not afraid to confront these people if necessary. He had no desire to please men, and he was certainly not a bully. I think of what he wrote to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and following. He said, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So that gives you an idea, once again, of who he really was. So back to verse 11, let such persons consider this. In other words, you people that say these terrible things about me, being two-faced, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. By the way, he will go on to underscore this same issue in chapter 13, beginning in verse 2. Here's what he says. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. There's my father example. Son, don't make me have to come over there. I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God, for we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Beloved, this is such an important evidence of godliness. To be a man or woman who is in public what he or she is in private. And even to conduct yourself in writing the same way you would in person. I've seen a lot of things on Facebook that I dare say a person would never say to my face. Ah, don't you know now people were squirming back there in the corner. Paul's not finished yet. He goes on to speak fifthly of how a godly life is one of humility and contentment. By the way, here in verse 12 and following, there's a lot of irony, a lot of sarcasm. Here's what he says in verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. In other words, I'm not going to play your game I'm not going to do the one-upmanship thing by commending myself or comparing myself to others. I am not going to, in our vernacular, toot my own horn like you do. I'm not going to do that. Paul understood Proverbs 26.5, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Now, that's how Paul is thinking. Now, let's just be honest with ourselves here. When we compare ourselves to others, we tend to pick people that we know are somehow beneath us, at least in our own mind, right? That's how it works. And we're hopelessly biased in our own favor. And by nature, we tend to exaggerate our 
accomplishments. <laughs> we tend to, to even fish for compliments. We're all prone to self-promotion. You know, as I think about it, it starts when you're a toddler. You know, you, you look at the toddler and, you know, the toddler says, Daddy, Daddy, watch this. And he jumps three times with both feet. The daddy says, oh, wow, look at you. You jumped three times with both feet. You know, you're going to be an Olympic hopper someday, <laughs> you know. But we want that adult, uh, uh, that, 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 that adoration. And even when we grow up, we still look for it. We're always commending ourselves. I mean, you see it on Facebook all the time. As I've said, you take away the comments and the likes on Facebook, the thing would fold up overnight. Occasionally, Nancy will snicker over there in her chair, and she says, Honey, you've got to read this. And I know she's looking at something on Facebook, so I'll, I'll go over and read it. And so often, it's the incoherent ramblings of a fool, and I can't even get halfway through it. I, I feel you know I'm losing brain cells just reading the thing. But that's what false teachers do. You, you just read the stuff that they write, if you can tolerate it, or listen to them. And yet they're always strutting around, looking for praise. And so many of the things that they say are just, are just ludicrous. Not to mention some of the things they do are stupid. I, I, I was reading what was going on in a, it's called Renewal Church of Chicago. And they recently hosted a speaker who said, quote, the majority of white people have a mental disorder and don't even know it. Boy, he went on to say that we suffer from, quote, post-traumatic slave master disorder. I, I don't even know how to respond to that. I, I mean, that, that, that takes absurdity to, a, I mean, that's just irrational. Folks, that's snake oil medicine, but the problem is, People are buying this by the boatloads, by the truckloads. That's how Satan works. And I also noticed, you know, the My Pillow guy had some huge rally. I don't know. I don't know what all was going on there, but he he was giving people prayer pillows. You know, he claims to be a believer. I hope he is. And I notice on the stage they're kneeling on these pillows. And they give everybody a prayer pillow when they leave. I mean, so many of the things, I mean, it's no wonder the world looks at Christians and think, my goodness, these people are nuts. Well, that's what false teachers do. And Paul continues his defense, verse 12. He says, but, but, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. You know, Paul measured himself as we all should do. And again, this is, this is an evidence of godliness. You don't measure yourself against other people. You measure yourself against Christ. What did Paul say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will free me from the body of this death, referring to remaining sin that he still has strapped to him, so to speak. Thankfully, right after that, Romans 8, 1, he says, but there's no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ. But, folks, none of us have anything to brag about, all right? I mean, even our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We're all debtors to his grace. Our only boast is in the Lord. I mean, to say that Paul was a braggart, 
Think of what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 13. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Can you imagine any of the false teachers saying that? Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I mean, that doesn't sound like the words of an arrogant man. 2 Corinthians 2, 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, and also verse 7, he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then he went on to say, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, referring to a, a cheap unattractive, fragile, expendable, disposable clay pot. We have this treasure of the gospel in this clay pot so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Don't look at me. Look at what's in the pot. That's the glory of the gospel. And notice what he goes on to say in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 10. We will not boast beyond our measure. This is so pointed. I mean, you read between the lines, what he's saying is, we will not boast beyond our measure like you false teachers do. Your exaggerated and bogus claim of being an apostle. But, Paul says, within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. In other words, he would only point to the verifiable results of his ministry as it had been manifested there in Corinth and in other places where God had called called him. And it's beautiful to think about this. Every ministry, no, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is important in God's eyes. As stewards, we are to be found what? Faithful. Not successful in the eyes of the world, but faithful. Paul's humility was also, therefore, the key to his contentment. He was perfectly happy blooming where he was planted, being a a minister within the sphere of God's sovereignly ordained boundaries for his ministry, for his life. I heard recently the story of a prominent theologian by the name of Norman Geisler, When he was a little boy, he was in an unsaved family, and somebody invited him to vacation Bible school. So he went, as a little boy would do, and they said, look, if you'd like to come to Sunday school, any of you children would be glad to to bring you to Sunday school. We'll arrange a ride for you. And as the story goes, there was a bus driver in that church that drove Norman Geisler to Sunday school for eight years. They calculated about 400 times. And never once during that time did he ever make a profession of faith until 
the end of high school. And God in his grace radically saved him as he does all of us. And I was just thinking about how driving that bus was, as Paul said, the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to him. Folks, where are you driving the bus in your life? It doesn't have to be necessarily within the church, even though there's plenty of places to do that, but in your family, at work, wherever it is. Where are you serving Christ, and joyfully so? I thank God for godly grandmothers and grandfathers who prayed for me when I was a little boy, for parents that raised me in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, for Sunday school teachers, most of them little Swedish ladies, because we went to a Swedish Baptist church in Moline, Illinois. I praise God for boys' brigade leaders. That was our version of, I don't know what you have today, but it's kind of like a Christian Boy Scout, who every Thursday night they would meet with us over at a gym, and we would play games, do all kinds of things, and then they would minister to us and disciple us. Many of those men who gave up a week of their vacation every year to take the boys up to the boundary waters of Minnesota for a canoe trip. I thank God for those people, men and women who served in obscurity, but they were faithful, they were humble, and they were content. Beloved, God has sovereignly measured a sphere of ministry for each one of you. And we can rejoice in that. As he says in verse 13, God has apportioned to us a measure of the sphere, that sphere of influence where he wants you to serve him for your good and his glory. And again, I would humbly ask you to, to examine your heart. Where are you serving Christ? What's the sphere of influence that God has apportioned to you? Are you content with where God has you? You know, we're all part of the same body. We're all to serve one another and to put the glory of Christ on display. And I praise God for all the unseen workers here at Calvary Bible Church, especially the nursery workers. My goodness, that's got to be the toughest job in the church, you know. I mean, I'm just not good at changing diapers and screaming kids. I mean, a man's got to know his limitations, right? You know, I'm convinced that one of the most important ministries at Calvary Bible Church or any, any church, one that requires the greatest commitment to Christ and, and love for others is motherhood. That, that, that's just got to be the hardest job on earth. Praise God for godly mothers. Dear friends, you will never be happy in your Christian life unless you're serving him joyfully with contentment and humility, knowing that right now, and it may change in your life, but right now in that sphere of influence that God has apportioned for you, that that is the place where God is blessing you and growing you and using you. Moreover, you're going to forfeit joy and effectiveness if you are jealous of other people or if you're discontent with where God has stationed you. But pastor, I'm not, sure where, I'm not sure what I need to be doing. Well, then pray. Ask the Spirit of God to show you. And believe me, He will. And just look around you and say, Lord, how can I be of help? So unlike the exaggerated boasting of the false apostles, 
who were looking to build a ministry empire, Paul was perfectly content with all of his suffering, all of his serving within the sphere of ministry that God had apportioned to him. And then he adds this in verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. In other words, it's no exaggeration for me to claim that I founded the church by God's grace in Corinth, that I came all the way. I mean, that's, a, that's an indisputable fact. He goes on to say, for we were the first to come, even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, like you guys back there in the corner. That's the idea. Not boasting beyond our measure. That is, in other men's labors. Boy, that would have sucked the air right out of wherever they were, right? That's a direct insult to those people. So often, false teachers and phony Christians in a church have no legitimate accomplishments of their own. But they merely put their name on the marquee of the buildings that others have erected. People ask me a lot of times, Dave, how's your church going? And I'm always real quick to say, first of all, it's not my church. It's the Lord's church. You know, I'm just happy to be there. But to answer your question, he is doing great things in spite of me because he has placed me right in the midst of a group of godly people, godly servants with a multiplicity of gifts. And I'll kind of go on like this. And it's like, boy, I didn't ask for all of this, but okay, thank you. But it's important for us to realize that that we all need each other. You know, I was thinking about this. Do you realize that roughly 20 years ago, seven members of this, seven families of this church, and that was about all there were, co-signed a note to the bank to build this building. Think about that. That's people that are dedicated. That's people that are committed. So again, Paul was not boasting beyond his measure, that is, in other men's labors. And he goes on in verse 15 to say, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. In other words, our prayer is that as you grow in Christ, we will be able to assist others and you will co-labor with us for the sake of the gospel in an ever-extending realm of ministry. I mean, that's what needs to happen in a church. And then he says in verse 16, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. In other words, I'm not going to take credit for other men's labors. But then he says this, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, verse 17, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And this, dear friends, is the final evidence of godliness, a life that is devoted to the glory of Christ. You see, all false teachers will end up boasting in themselves rather than giving the glory to God. Over the years, I've been around a lot of of Christian big shots, a lot of them that you would know, a lot of Christian artists, I know a lot of them that they will not fly unless it's first class. They have to have five-star hotels, motels, whatever. They have to go to five-star restaurants. They will tell you this. Male and female prima donnas. A prima donna is a temperamental person 
According to the dictionary, a person who takes adulation and privileged treatment as a right and reacts with petulance to criticism or inconvenience. Boy, does that describe a lot of people that I've known and know even to this day. They will give you a list of requirements of the kind of food and drinks that they want in a certain room before they go on stage, before they preach. They will have an entourage that will carry all their bags and wait on them hand and foot. Why do people do that? Because they're filled with pride. They're looking for self-glory, not the glory of the Lord. Theirs is a life life that is dedicated to the glory of self, not the glory of Christ. I mean, folks, compare that to the life and the sufferings of Christ and the apostles. I mean, self-commendation is absolutely repulsive. Remember what the Lord spoke through his servant Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, beginning in verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, And let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You want God to bless your life? And use your life for his glory. Do you want him to delight in you? Then devote yourself to what we've just read. To understanding him, knowing him, and exercising loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. In other words, be a godly man or woman that is absolutely consumed and devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, child of God, your life is to be all about God and his glory. Not you and your glory. If this is true for you, then you will enjoy God's blessing. Romans 15, 17, Paul said this, such an amazing passage. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. What a great statement. And he goes on to say, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Oh, what a magnificent reminder. And again, what he says here in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 10, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And dear friends, that commendation in your life and in mine will not ultimately come until we see him face to face. So don't be looking for it now. Oh, he will bless, he will encourage, he will strengthen, but the commendation ultimately comes when as selfless servants we stand before him and we hear him say, well done, faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, a life devoted to the glory of Christ is one that gives him praise for all of his or her accomplishments. Moreover, it will be a life, it will be a life that is lived with an eye towards heaven. Don't be looking at the temporal things. They will all disappear. It's the eternal things that will last. Well, there you have it, six evidences of godliness. A life that in, in, imitates and draws others to Christ 
It will be a life that builds up the true church, one that is solely controlled by the pure gospel, one of unimpeachable integrity, one of humility and contentment, and a life devoted to the glory of Christ. Let me close with just something real brief, real practical for you. You say, I, I, I want to grow in godliness. Well, I, let me give you some practical ways to do that. Number one, listen to great Bible expositors because you won't grow apart from the Word of God. Listen to men that will unpack the Scriptures and help you understand and apply them. Peter described this in 1 Peter 2, 1 and following. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. In other words, the Word, like milk for a baby, is going to be a matter of life and death. Crave it. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Secondly, spend time around godly, mature saints who manifest these six evidences of godliness. Not always, but in most cases, they're going to have gray hair because they've been around long enough to experience these things. 1 Corinthians 15:33 Paul says do not be deceived bad company corrupts good morals company in greek homilia we get our word homily our english word homily from that refers to uh, communications or conversations including lectures and sermons but it also refers to uh, things like associations or consorting with or joining in with others Choose your friends wisely. Spend your time around godly people. Don't listen to these deceptive sermons or associate with these people that are, that are phony. They will corrupt good morals. Don't pay any attention to errant doctrine, to bad doctrine. It will corrupt you. They, these things are insidious. Spend time around godly saints. Thirdly, do character studies in the Bible. Study great men and women of God. And I might add to that, read biographies of godly men and women. I love to do that. I probably, there's very seldom a week that goes by that I don't read church history and read about these godly people. My, how you can learn from them. By the way, unless you read and study, you'll never really grow in Christ, okay? You've got to read, you've got to study. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for only for old women. By the way, Paul's describing uh, the teachings of the Ephesian heretics. He described them as godless and just old wives' tales, that which is religiously bankrupt. He says, on the other hand, and I love this, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Gumnasia, we get our word gymnasium from that, discipline. If I can put it this it, by the way, it refers to physical exercise. If I can put it this way, work out for the purpose of godliness, all right? You're going to have to discipline yourself. Get a workout plan and stick with it. Find out where you're weak and start building up. It's not going to happen just automatically, just by showing up at church. I mean, that's going to help. You're going to have to apply these things. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Then he adds this, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. 
By the way, it's at least a little profit, so you need to be doing that too, all right? So don't think you're off the hook here and you can just be a couch potato. It is a little profit, but it's only a little. But he says, godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then finally, please hear me. Pray for your growth in godliness, okay? Make it a matter of prayer. That needs to be a priority. Jesus said in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, doesn't mean tacking in Jesus' name under the end of your prayer. It means with a desire to bring glory to Christ. Whatever you ask in my name for my glory, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, this is the desire of our heart. We want more than anything else in the world to give you glory in all things. And we pray that you will help us to that end. Give us an ever-increasing passion to know you more and to serve you more. To experience the joy of your presence within our soul. Help us to keep your commandments. Deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation and so many other things like that that we know you would have us pray. Lord, may this be the passion of every heart here at Calvary Bible Church. And Lord, for those who may not know you as Savior, I pray that you will bring conviction and that you will break their heart over their sin and restore their heart by your saving grace as you cause them to be born again and give them the gift of faith. Lord, we plead on their behalf and to that end. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.